Hello and welcome to the Andrew Ferris Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the show. Today on the show, I am joined by my great friend Aaron Orndorff. Aaron is a former colleague of mine in the Common Thread Collective 4x400 ecosystem. You've known him and seen him around Twitter and that sort of thing. Aaron has a really interesting spot in the e-commerce landscape because he's been around it for a long time, both at Shopify Plus and at Common Thread Collective and now at Recart, at all of those places as basically a lead marketer or content marketer in some way. He's currently the head of marketing at Recart. And Aaron has this perspective on the whole e-com universe that he gets from seeing and talking to all kinds of business owners in these very different ways across that landscape. And so I love talking to him about this. He just has a lot of different touch points that most people don't have. We have a wide ranging and long conversation here because Aaron and I are great friends. So we talked a lot about marketing and in the general sense of what makes good marketing and storytelling. I think Aaron is a really compelling thinker on this topic, whether you're doing B2B marketing or B2C marketing, like he is really, really interesting. And and so we get into some of that and how he thinks about marketing and what you might call the hero's journey and that sort of thing. And then we get into some really practical, tactical SMS stuff because he's currently working at a place that is an SMS software. So I found that really helpful as well. He's got some awesome insights on thinking about things like how to clean your list, which I didn't even like really know was a thing in SMS, as well as really what makes for a good, powerful SMS program. So you're going to like this episode a lot. I'm going to jump into it. One quick note on the front end, something went wrong with my microphone during this episode. And while the sound quality is okay, what ended up happening was that it got recorded on my MacBook Pro. So it sounds okay, but if it's a little bit worse of an audio quality than usual, I apologize for that. I realized it about 50 minutes into the conversation. So it was too late to go back and fix it. Hopefully that's not too much of a problem. Having said that, let's jump in. I'm all nervous to do the intro because you're here. Hello and welcome to the Andrew Ferris Podcast. Why am I nervous? It's my friend Aaron Orndorff on the show with me today. No reason to beat around the bush. That is who is here. Aaron is a big figure, key player, important person in the e-commerce space because he's been around in a lot of different places and on Twitter for a long time as a marketer across the biggest and most important software companies and agencies in the world. Most important might be a little bit self-aggrandizing considering that he was at the same company that I worked for for a while. It's Common Thread Collective. Aaron is the head of marketing right now at Recart and previously was at Shopify and was the head of marketing also at Common Thread Collective. Uh, Shopify Plus officially, right, Aaron? Is that, right? that is true. Yeah? Okay, great. All right, Aaron is here. I am here talking to my friend Aaron, and this is going to be a great episode. We're going to talk about SMS and get really tactical about how to use SMS well. He has this great perspective from the inside of an SMS software provider, so he can tell you exactly what is working and what is not working right now with real awareness of what's going on. And we also talk a little bit about the state of e-commerce in general, what you're seeing as a software provider, what are businesses doing and not doing right now, how to think about marketing in the hero's journey, and uh, whatever else we get to, really. Aaron's a great friend of mine, and we'll be glad to talk. Maybe we'll just talk about Derek Webb the whole time, Aaron. All right, that's it. Let's jump in. Everybody, you're going to like this episode a lot. All right, man. How you doing? I am so... I have no idea why you have any nerves about this interview. I love to say I'm not an e-commerce marketer, but I play one on the internet. And when I get into rooms with people like you, that's when all the imposter syndrome comes <laughs> just rushing, bleeding out of me. You got zero worries in this game. I'm just here to try to keep up and be as honest as I possibly can be throughout this. I don't have nerves about the conversation. It's just so funny. Like it's for for now. I mean, I don't know. I've been doing these episodes since 
December, like I think 2019 or something is when you, is when we did the first e-commerce playbook podcast together, which was something that you pushed me to do it when we were both at CTC. And so we've now been at this for a little while. I've done a lot of episodes and I'm, I'm really comfortable talking on a microphone and all that kind of stuff, except the intro. The intro, I'm still just, every single time I record it, even if nobody else is here, I just feel ridiculous and I don't know why. It's, it's just like, Maybe what you're saying, but like with radio, like I, I'm not really a person who, I'm not really a radio broadcaster, but I play one on the internet. That's what it feels like for this. And if I like knew what I was doing better, then I would probably have a, a better time with the intro. But I just, I stumble through it every time. I can't even tell you how many episodes where like the thing that takes me the longest is to record the intro four times. I can hear my wife laughing at me in the other room sometimes and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. Listen, I don't know I'll why. really make you feel bad because what... I'm a writer by trade. That's really, that's really what I am. I know how to do stuff with words. And I will slave over an introduction. Almost the inverse of you just having to bang it out and be uncomfortable with it. That is where I will camp and hone. And because I know if I can get them with those first, that headline to first line to first paragraph to what's the problem to here's the setup and where we're going to go. Like I know if I can hook them with that, it's almost like the rest doesn't matter. We're just going to do the inverse of that right now. All right. Yeah. Yeah, it is funny though. I think part of it is like, I'm assuming that people are kind of already in once they have looked at the title of the episode. There's just gonna be people for this who either see a clip that I post that gets clipped down on Twitter or you post on Twitter or something like that, right? And Or they'll just see Aaron Ordorf is in the title and they'll, and they'll go, oh, I'm listening, I'm in. I'm in on Aaron Ordorf, I'm in. That's, that's about 90% of what's going to happen. 90%, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And when that happens, then like the intro, they'll just suffer through me stumbling through it and they don't really care because they know that within 45 seconds, it'll get to an actual conversation with Aaron, which is what they came for. So yeah, so it's like the opposite of that. I don't actually need to hook them. I just need to hook them on the headline. So maybe I should have you write my episode titles, just everything else I'll do, but just pay you to do some episode title consulting. I'm down. I, I love it. Anything to get back in the room and have more Andrew in my life. I'm I know. We, we keep trying to figure out ways to do this. So at some point, maybe that's the, maybe that's the first step. So what's happening, man? What do you, what's going on? Tell me about life these days in the e-commerce universe. You are now over at a software company at Recart and tell people what you're doing there. So for, for those of you, and I know it's like probably hard for someone like Andrew to believe there are going to be people that tune in that don't know who I am. And you, you teed me up with the introduction. I've been in the online writing, online marketing world for about a decade now literally celebrated a decade of both continuous sobriety and marketing, which is an interesting one-two combination to tell you where my life was when I started marketing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I kick this thing off, right? And I know you can. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I made my way into e-commerce, basically falling backwards into opportunity after opportunity, where I was just hungry. I had uh, successfully burnt down a previous career where I'd gone to graduate school for ministry, not in somebody's like basement, but an actual accredited educational institution had burnt that down. I picked back up some teaching. So I taught university, colleges, writing, public speaking, those sort of things. And at the same time started writing online because uh, I needed to eat it was really the impetus for why I became a marketer. Where did you go to seminary again? Here in Portland, Oregon at Western. Western? Western yeah, Seminary. Right. Yeah, okay, great. Some of you know I'm, Aaron is talking about these related stories because I'm also a seminary graduate and also entered e-commerce out of uh, a bunch of life change and all of that kind of stuff eight years ago. You beat me by two years, but somewhere around the same time. I 
can't really tell if it's whatever that bias is where like attracts and you see what you, you buy a Volkswagen all of a sudden everybody's driving a Volkswagen. You see them all over the place. If it's that or if there really is this subcurrent sub niche of exactly that ex-ministry who turned into dirty marketers. Yeah, uh, something like that. I interrupted you though, keep going. So you started writing to keep food on the table. Yeah, and one thing led to another. I connected with a guy named Tommy Walker, who was probably one of two of the, like the largest influences in my career. He had been the editor-in-chief of Conversion XL, now CXL, where Pep Lejeux uh, is ruling the world. He just left recently, now he's doing winter for branding. He had been picked up, Tommy, by Shopify Plus as the first marketing hire when it basically graduated from a whiteboard of how do we not lose our biggest merchants to Magento, et cetera, into an actual CRM and they were building out product features. I had no business writing for e-commerce at the time, let alone enterprise e-commerce, but good writing covers a multitude of sins. Is how I like, I got all these like reference points from my previous life. So I, I stumbled into Shopify Plus right when they were taken off. They had hired Hannah Abaza as the director of marketing. There were four of us in the room at the first offsite. By the time I left, like four and a half years later, there were like 30 people in the room from field marketers to CRM experts, email, et cetera. I had the great opportunity to essentially step into leading all written content while I was at Shopify Plus and especially getting to oversee and conduct a lot of the case studies with large hyper growth merchants, either people that were coming in or grew up onto the platform to get that real front row seat into e-commerce. and. I fell in love. It was like the niche that just made a lot of analytical sense to me. So I cut my teeth. I got my start there at Shopify Plus. We met, by the way, when you were there. Right. I ran into Taylor Holiday, CEO of Common Thread Collective, and Andrew Ferris when you were still at Common Thread Collective, right? Yeah, yeah. So we had like a case study that we wanted to publish as marketing for us, and Taylor and I just did not have a clue what we were doing. So we reached out to, to Sumo and you with the same piece of content. I remember having a funny interaction with you about this because the piece we put together, it's still out there on Shopify Plus blog. I think maybe either there or the Sumo version of it is like, I don't think I'm credited as the author on one of them anymore. At least like unknown or guest writer or whatever. But it's basically, it was a piece on like how to think about your Black Friday ad spend based off of our experience at CTC. And it was specifically about delayed attribution, essentially, like spend your money early in November and fill the sponge is the way Taylor, Taylor Holiday would say it now, right? And then after that, you like generate the value at Black Friday. It doesn't really matter, although I stand by most of what was written in that. The funny thing is I remember interacting with you about it and feeling a couple things. One of them was like, okay, this guy's from Shopify Plus. He's a much bigger deal than me, first of all. Secondly, you had way more Twitter followers than anybody that was around. So I was like, okay, obviously he's important. And then third, better dressed than I was. So there's that, still are, no question there. Number four though, I remember your reaction. It seemed to me trying to hide that you were very happy to have this piece of content, like just handed to you, finished basically, and like not even asking for money for it. And that was the thing that Taylor and I think didn't realize. We were like, yeah, this is great. We're gonna get marketing for our agency. And it actually probably was a reasonable trade at the time because we didn't really have a meaningful way to publish it. But you were like, so you, you want to hand me this finished piece of content with all the charts and all those kinds of things and I just have to like rebrand it and then make it a little different than the Sumo one? All right. And so then it's like you just had like a new piece of content for your blog and that was like done and written. You didn't have to pay a freelancer or anything, you know? So at that time I was like, oh, that's right. Content has value to people. And so you should charge for it or something, you know? 
there was so much in that experience that was the kernel of everything I'm still about and everything that I was about and that attracted me to Common Thread Collective, to you and Taylor, and then everyone else whose orbit I got into throughout that. But the yeah. basic bottom line, it's funny to hear you talk about your experience because, yeah, my experience was this is head and shoulders above any of the garbage I'm pitched on a regular <laughs> basis. Yeah. I would get pitched constantly from partners. And so this is the first lesson of the entire episode is not only does good writing cover a multitude of sins, it's just as true if you're trying to pitch your brand either from a SaaS agency perspective into yeah. a large outlet or even your D2C brand into a publication is if you create custom content for a publisher, for PR, for whatever you want to dress it up as, if you're able to create a piece that takes work off an editor or a journalist's or a content manager's plate, if you're able to take away something from their to-do list, they will lose their minds because it's so rare that good content gets passed over to people. That's super interesting. Yeah, like when I got my start, I pitched full, complete articles to every publisher under the sun and just reverse engineered email addresses from Fast Company, Business Insider, Entrepreneur, all the niche publications in the marketing world as well, Success Magazine, like all these spots, Forbes, that I had no business writing for or getting coverage on. But because I would take the time to actually tailor a complete piece of content and hand it over to the editors and I would send that, not a pitch, the doors opened so quickly. And if anything, that world has only accelerated in the need to feed the beast in online content. If you're looking to get coverage for either your app, your agency, or your brand, that is infinitely better than pitching angles and especially trying to go in cold with typically a PR agency. That's really interesting. I wonder if the play for brand owners is to go essentially get a freelance writer who's good to write up a piece of PR about the brand and then just like essentially pitch that. So as you could say like, I wonder if the move is like to give the piece of content to the freelancer, even pay them to write it and then they can go pitch it. So they actually get money up front so they have a reason to cover you, but then they also have a completed piece to pitch. I wonder if that's the move to get written PR about your brand. By the time I made it into Shopify Plus, like my own content agency was up running, firing all cylinders and I was ghostwriting that exact process. And I kid you not, like I ghostwrote for Wired, for Harvard Business Review. And uh, I'll send you I'll send you the pieces because I left links to things that Aaron Orndorff had written. This is the, <laughs> I kid Genius. you not. I left links to things Aaron Orndorff had written in the articles so that I could go back and have valid like, yeah, I actually did do that without saying out loud who did what. That worked incredibly, like HBR would, get and the value of that is huge yeah this is a funny little look into what you're great at which is you're the best b2b like marketer in the e-commerce space that's for sure like i don't know anybody else who accomplishes what you have been able to accomplish when we were working together at ctc and when i was at 404 and stuff like, i just can't even tell you how often i heard just like ctc has the best content in the world but part of it is this mix of like real skill with the written word first of all which is a big part of it and that really matters secondly you have a good nose for like what good and bad content is. You are able to tell, oh, that actually sucks. So we shouldn't write that for even if it has SEO value. <laughs> and then third, that you're like really strategic. You think much more analytically than just a pure writer often does. You're playing the game. And that little story is like a, such a seed of that, that you just end up playing the game at like a different level where you're not just like, 
I'm just a writer writing. You're like, no, no, I'm a marketer trying to figure out how to win a game. And I care about the view counts and I care about the backlinks and I care about the tactics involved and I care about how to get it published. And there's like a real strategic element of that that I think mixes all those together so that you've actually got both skills. So you're good at the content and you're good at the strategy side. Content commerce, some people would say. Sprinkle on some shamelessness. That is the <laughs> final totally true. It's totally that true. you need. And there's situations where I am not above can just blast and begging for shares and likes and retweets and comments and things like that when I really want to push a piece. My favorite though was, so I wrote for Mashable for a while. This is about like three, four years ago. So they had this like social counter on the site where like any articles that got shared or interacted with, they would get then bumped to the top of their section and then bumped to the homepage. And you could literally buy likes on Facebook through just promotion of <laughs> engagement and blow it up for like $100 and then hit the front page of Mashable and then it would take on its own momentum once it got the eyeballs onto it. So I'm shameless, I'm always looking yeah, for that angle of like how do you so game the smart. system? You get that momentum going and then beautiful things happen. That's amazing. Okay, so go back to again, you were saying you experienced something that the content that I gave you was better that your side of that that interaction we had, the content I gave you was better than what you were getting elsewhere. And you were gonna say something else about that, I think, maybe maybe not, but. Yeah, so then also I felt like in my end, I was taking advantage of the two of you <laughs> because what I knew is that you thought this was going to be good for your business. And <laughs> I basically knew it wasn't. Because <laughs> this is the other dark side underbelly of like, if it's a mainstream publication that you can game the system of and get in front of a lot of eyeballs without paying for it, that's the power of organic placed content versus like pay for play buying. Yeah, because everybody's got their own pay for play platform now. And there's so much more value in the organic side of earned that you can control. But I also knew from like an SEO perspective, basically what I'm gonna do is take this, I can make this rank for a term that I really want and need and I almost felt bad. And was, the funniest part was after I left Shopify, right? I got picked up to do freelance work for CTC to start. That was at like the end of 2019. We did a bunch more Black Friday, Cyber Monday content. And it was the bane of my existence for a long time is that I'm never going to outrank the stuff. And so now what I find is it's the exact same thing. It was like, I had this one piece for the CTC blog that was on e-commerce trends. And I honed that thing like the entire time I was at Common Thread Collective, going back to it, driving links to it. And it was all like literally just an attempt to finally beat the article that I had written for Shopify Plus back three years ago that they kept refreshing. So and funny. like to actually win against myself was a really big deal. So funny. You know, I think you were wrong though, that it wasn't good for our business. Cause we ended up being able to refer that piece out in a lot of different places. And even if we were the ones who had to drive the traffic to it, I think it did help us that it was published on like a reputable provider's website, whether we did the super sumo or the Shopify plus version. So I think it didn't give us like brand awareness per se, but I think it actually did help with our brand equity. We would send a lot of people that piece and just like having it published at Shopify plus or whatever, would be a way of saying, see, look, somebody else agrees with us that even though your ROAS looks really bad, you can trust us that it will get better, essentially. And that like you can trust the strategy is meaningful. Like it passed through some other eyes. In fact, it passed through eyes at two different publications. So you're definitely right about it, is that anywhere where you were taking advantage of us in that moment, we were not aware of it and we were not savvy about what was happening in the B2B marketing world. We just were a couple of videos. That's to a really good lesson because I think you're right. I had to undo that thought over time while I was a common thread collective that there is value in 
the things I can't control. But for the longest time, I would really push hard on anyone who was putting out fire native social content to be like, stop putting it out. Let me have eyes on it, craft something where someone can go, a lander connected to it. And eventually I got to the place, no, 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 that's wrong. There is value in the thing existing out there on its own terms. And having it at a place where there is a lot of, especially Shopify Plus, where there's like an immediate validation stamp of approval, I was wrong on that front. And I think there is value on both sides. Yeah, I agree. There's some element in which you can't actually strategy your way through all of it. There's some degree to where like the original creator with their thought and what they had behind it is going to work to some degree. And you can help shape those things to some element of things. But actually, like, we were excited about the piece and we could do some stuff with it, you know? Yeah. Because I, I am, right? I'm a writer, I'm a content person, first and foremost, and I've worked my way into a strategic marketing, VP of marketing, head of marketing sort of role, but there's so much heat and fire and excitement right now around content and commerce. And the biggest lesson that I've taken away from all these years in content is if you're going to create it and you're not like a venture back, you're not gonna build a media arm. Some people can build a media arm and it's fine. They're just gonna hire the right people, off they go. You and your team are actually gonna do it in a sort of bootstrapped way. The content you create has to be stuff you would make that you couldn't not make is the way to put it. You have to find your native content language. And I think about the way like Isaac from Mini Katana or even before him, Eric from Beard Brand. You probably don't know this, but at the time of recording this, I've already recorded with Isaac. Isaac's episode on this podcast will go live two weeks before your episode will. So yeah, I just talked with him. If you're listening to this show right now, definitely go back and listen to that. It's a really fascinating conversation. And we referenced Ben Holtz and Beard Brand in that episode as well, because it's the obvious prelude to what Isaac's doing. And to your point, the point you're making right now, I think, before I interrupted you again, is that I asked Isaac at the end of the show the question, like, do you think like most brands should be doing what you're doing? And he was like, no. He tells you throughout that episode how to do it, how well it works. It's incredible. It's incredible what he's doing and all of these things. And then it's like, nah, a lot of brands shouldn't try to do this. It actually won't work for everybody that way because of, I think what you're getting at, which is there's something about the creators have to create kind of mentality that you need as a fire underneath you that isn't actually everybody. Part of great strategy is figuring out like, what can you do uniquely versus what somebody else can do? I'll even have that conversation with a guy who ran a leather goods business and who I like a lot. And he was telling me about some of the things he was doing. And I was like, dude, stop listening to my podcast. He was a super creative guy. And I was like, don't keep trying to do my thing. Like you want to go and make videos in your free time that are like these artsy, really cool. They look like Wes Anderson pieces or something like that. Like go do that because I can't do that. Don't sit here and try to like figure out the perfect media buying strategy. Like I guess get the best of that stuff because it's all useful, but. No, you're right. One of the things I did before I came on is I went back and listened to a bunch of the episodes because I've been a mad fan of Andrew's since he started podcasting on the e-commerce plague of podcast. And one, it intimidated me because I went and Since you told me on the e-commerce Yeah, since podcast. I was like, go bleed, go bleed on the mic. But like you came to this in your conversation with Matthew from Pella and Lomi, Pella Case and Lomi, where like you finally kind of reached that place of that special gifting that he has around customer experience is it colors what then becomes, it feels like the one thing that grows a business or the centerpiece that grows a business. And it's the exact same thing in the episode with Bear from Born Primitive, which is like, there you've got somebody who is product and community have come together 
And it's such a powerful combination and it's so rooted in the DNA of the individual that's at the heart of that brand or the individuals in the case of Bear and his wife, Mallory, right? And so for me, like the piece is, I see everything through the lens, the first and foremost lens of words and content. And then I build everything out from that centerpiece. What really matters is what is the thing that gives you disproportionate leverage yep. for you and your brand? There's like a subjective objective here thing, right? If you can combine that subjective thing with the things that objectively work across the board, if you can actually run your subjective skill through the filter of the principles that are true, because there are some things that are true, <laughs> I think. If you can figure out the alignment to those, you can probably build a really good business. And I, like what I mean is actually like buying ads with cost caps and a really careful awareness of your LTV to CAC is right. You should do that if you're running Facebook ads. And actually Facebook ads is a uniquely great opportunity right now. It's not the only thing everybody has to do, but like for many, if not most brands, they should be using that skill and they should do it in the most skillful way they can. But in the midst of that, if they can run their particular skills through that kind of thing, that's where you can, I think, maximize the effectiveness. I know I just was saying that story that I told that guy to stop listening to my podcast. And at that point it was because he, he was, I think, getting too caught up and like, these are the answers to my problems is like some tactical thing like this, you know? But there is a way of doing this and Bear is a great example of this. Like there's an argument that the reason Bear's brand has worked so well, and we're talking about my episode with Born Primitive, it's called, I think Born Primitive just did $1.2 million in two hours. And you should go listen to that. He's a fascinating dude and one of my favorite entrepreneurs I've been around. But and Bear one of the healthiest, healthiest, businesses. Oh yeah. He's an ongoing client for me right now. Like he's a CTC client. Like I can just tell you, I've looked inside that business. That is not a guy who's making up numbers and is actually like a train wreck on the inside of his business. That is a very good business. And yeah, in any case, Bayer has accomplished this very well. It's like this mix of who he is and the way those things go into the brand and the, who Mallory is, his ex-spouse who runs it with him and her ability to think about the product really carefully. But they've also done an incredible job of thinking carefully about the way they do their ad buying relative to their LTV and thinking carefully about parsing customers and how big moments and peaks and like Taylor's Four Peaks Theory idea and the squeezing the sponge and some of those things that we talk about as key tactics like combine. And when you get those two things together mixed with just what's a good product and a good business, you end up getting like massive amounts of value that can really scale. And there's left and right limits. There's sort of rules to the roads. There's the science of business. It's just going to come down to the numbers. And I appreciate this a lot about the way you drive at this, particularly in your episode on basically doubling down on your investment in Facebook and then secondarily Google, and then off to all the other things, because this is the one that's going to provide the disproportionate return and growth that you need. It's the greatest opportunity. But that doesn't mean inside of that, that you have to become a media buying expert, right? One of the things I love about both Lomi and Pelicase is they take the ethos of customer experience and this real strong commitment to a differentiated product, and they bring that to bear on the kind of ads that they create. And even the way they think about, like him saying how UGC has has never worked for them. That sort of content hasn't worked for them because it doesn't match up with the kind of person they're trying to attract given the price point and the uniqueness of what they've created. That even then it's applied to marketing, it's applied to content, but it forms that kernel. And the really dangerous thing is to think that with so many people, loud voices out there in the world, then this is going to be the next thing I should do. Yeah. You have to use UGC because UGC works and therefore you go and try and do that as opposed to like exactly what you just said, having more awareness of like how this thing plays out in your specific. Media Katana's like smashes it on TikTok and they're doubling down with more accounts and they're smashing it with YouTube shorts. 
And so you go, okay, I've got to go do that. But there's so many other ways to lean into what's the disproportionate strength and, and really then say no to all the other shiny objects that are just getting flung at you over and over and over again. Yeah, that's totally right. I, there's a few things I want to talk about here. And we're, this is a, already a fun conversation, if meandering. Let's talk about SMS a little bit. Let's not, no, let's not talk about SMS yet. I want to talk about that. You said you didn't have a hard stop. We're not going to push the limit on your listeners, but you said some nice things about <laughs> me as a writer. Okay, yeah, great. Okay, if there's something I'm world-class, it's that. It's combining existing demand that can be channeled through words via organic channels onto quality lead and revenue generation. I'd love to unpack that for a second. Yeah, I would like to do that too. Tell me more about the way you have a particular framework for thinking about how you are actually accomplishing that. That's not an accident that you're really good at that skill. So talk through your framework as a marketer for what's going on, how you're able to, to turn, like you said, existing demand into quality leads for something. And what is the framework through which you are running your content like that? I look at it through two lenses that it's not a balance between writing for robots which is basically existing demand, search volume. What are people, humans on the other end of this thing, what are the problems they're actively looking to solve as evidence through the words they're going to Google to say, help me solve blank. There's the one hand, well that's the objective reality of the rules, the math side of things. And there's ways to create content and tools that will help you create content that caters to those bots and captures and puts you in front of those. Search engine optimization is what we could call it, right? And then on the other side of that is the human element of it. Just good, good writing. And this human element, the way I try to force myself and the writers I work with, and I did this even when we write ads, when we write landers, is I've got to identify basically the hell, the current emotional pain someone is experiencing that our solution can solve and articulate that pain as clearly, if not better, than they can. Honing in on a single emotion, that is, is it confusion? Is it being overwhelmed? Is it uncertainty and frustration? What is the driving emotion behind the thing they're looking to solve? And then what is the most honest presentation of the heaven, if the hell is the pain, what's the most honest presentation of the heaven that we can deliver that we're going to get you to if you take whatever action this page, this email, this ad is asking you to take? If you click, if you sign up, if you book a time, what is the outcome going to be? If you read this entire article and guide, what are you going to be able to accomplish in saying that in as honest a way as you possibly can? And that I think is the key to so much of just good marketing is that emotional connection matched with we have to be able to quantify either the problem that people are looking to solve or if it's not one for one, what is the challenge they're facing that we can essentially capitalize on or channel that need into or onto a new way of thinking about it. But there's got to be a something to grab a hold of that already exists out there in the world. You've read Eugene Schwartz, right? Actually, I haven't. I'm embarrassed to say that I have not read that book. Yeah, I, I need that to do that. That shaped me more as a marketer right behind like the theology and the ministry stuff that I did in a, in a previous life. 
And the fundamental idea there is that copywriting does not create desire. It can only exploit, in the best sense of the word, exploit, use, leverage existing desires that a mass of people have. And so it's identifying what that mass desire is and how do I channel it on the thing that I want and then just telling the truth. The thing that's interesting about the framework there and specifically the kind of thing you're trying to do, which is in one respect, like the content that you're generating is long form, but it's direct response. Like you're actually trying to get somebody to take an action at the end of the most of those pieces of content, right? Absolutely. And I'm also, I think in funnel terms, and I stole this from a guy named Tim Keller, pastor out in NYC, who I just devoured when I was in seminary. And his basic idea, his premise is, I don't get to disagree with you until I can articulate your position better than you. And then my only goal in whatever encounter we have is to say, where are you at on the spectrum of A to Z, Z being you're gonna buy this thing today and give me your money. Where are you at on that spectrum? And so how do I move you one letter closer? Okay, that's super interesting. So you're not always actually trying to take somebody from all the way to purchase right away. Exactly. And it's especially like true for even the way I think about paid funnels and shaped by what is the thumb stop rate? Does it interrupt their feed long enough to get them to absorb it? And then if it does that, can I get them to click? If I get them to click, is that click prime propelling them towards the landing page in a way that prepares them to then take the next action on the landing page so that the headline they see matches up with the first line of copy, matches up with the image, matches up with the CTA that's on the page for them to take. You're thinking your way through it and then on into the email sequence that follows that up or whatever it is. It's the one next step that I'm trying to create. So this is what I was going to ask. Because you're doing actually in a sort of surprising way, a similar thing to what like a D2C advertiser is doing, right? In terms of direct response, Facebook ads type thing. Do you think that D2C advertisers, if I'm running ads for Bamboo Earth, skincare brand, right? Do you think that I should think in terms of your hell to have framework, I guess? What I think you should do is the same way when you get caught up in, you listen to someone or you follow someone and you think their superpower, what they're uniquely skilled at is the thing that you have to get really good at yourself. What really matters is not adopting like a heaven or hell framework, but figuring out what is the controlling metaphor that works for you to hold those two realities simultaneously. Uh, we are beholden to the math, the economics of this thing, and it's real humans on the other end and we have to treat them as such. And whatever puts you in a position to think critically and empathetically with those other people to put yourselves in their shoes that's what leads to breakthrough creative, breakthrough content, breakthrough marketing, is having those two simultaneously. So you've got to find something that works for you that takes it seriously. That's super interesting. I like that idea a lot, that on the one hand, there's math. There's a robust number at which you're no longer profitable and you have to solve that problem and you have to do it at a certain volume at which you have to accomplish this too, right? To keep enough, to keep the business working. There's constraints. Right, but then at the same time, there's people who you're actually trying to do your very best to identify with, what is the problem that they have? How do I articulate that back to them in a way that they will understand immediately and maybe articulate it better than they can understand it? And then you're also trying to take another step there and say, how do I now solve that problem for them or show them that we have a solution to that problem with honesty and all those things and empathize with them about all the concerns they have along the way. If you can accomplish those things, then you think that's going to be the key to unlock your value proposition, basically. This is one of the things that was so powerful about watching someone like Dave Recook from Bamboo Earth 
collaborate with a creative person like Ian, who used to be the chief creative officer at CTC and then has spent a lot of time helping hone the creative at Bamboo Earth, is watching like those two minds come together and rapidly create problem solution, problem solution, problem solution, specific angles based on very specific use cases and then saying, all right, now machine, you go figure out which one of these hits the most people in a way that makes them come and give us their money. Yeah, I have come to think that for many brands, that is what creative strategy really amounts to. The one distinction I'll say is that there's a large number of brands actually where like problem solution is not actually what you're selling, right? So there's probably still an element of this, I suppose, but like the example I think of mostly is apparel and anything where aesthetic is the primary selling point is kind of problem solution, right? In one respect, but it's also kind of not. You don't have to tell somebody they need pants. People have a sense that they are going to wear clothes and they want ones that look good and it's not as deep and whatever, I think. That's true. But think about somebody like Born Primitive and the narrative that their brand is immersed in is part and parcel of the CrossFit and now extended from CrossFit community. They're very much immersing themselves in the story that their audience already lives within. They're there to serve that community and make their experience of the things they already love better. And so there's definitely problems that they're solving in that. I suppose that's true. Even the way they iterated on their like their first pants and sports bras and things like that, it didn't fit the frame of the women that were yeah. in that community. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe in that respect, it's just the distinction between what happens at the ad level versus maybe what happens at the website level and some of the deeper looks for the person. Part of the reason I brought it up is that I've seen this a lot for a lot of brands recently where with apparel brands that I've looked at, like what I think what they underrate, and I'm actually thinking about putting together an episode on essentially how to scale your apparel brand, but like what they underrate is just that like a different product is a creative test and you don't have to go and overthink it. Like essentially people are gonna click on a thing they think is interesting and attractive and then they probably actually won't go buy that thing that they clicked on. They'll just like, oh, that's an interesting brand and they'll go explore and shop around because everybody's been on a million apparel websites and they all have their own styles that they like and they're gonna go look and see if the fit is right for them and they'll check the models and all that stuff. And as they go browse and go through all that experience, they're gleaning all these things about your brand from there. So the sports bra thing that you mentioned that Mal had solved for CrossFit athletes or whatever it is. And I think about this with some brands I've consulted with a hat brand at one point where it was like that kind of deal and they have all these features and benefits on the hat that are much different and better than a lot of other hats and, and so on. So yeah, I, I think you're maybe right. It just maybe happens in a slightly different way way in the process for some of those brands. But I think what's happening there a lot of times is the thing that's driving the click is actually not the problem solution orientation. It's quicker than all that at the click level. And then maybe as they drive home, they go to a different place. Because I've actually had this conversation with friends about Born Primitive where like women who are like, well, I don't look like that. Is this going to fit me okay? And then you tell them like, no, don't worry. It's going to fit you great. You don't have to be the most jacked 3% of people in the world for this to fit. Don't worry. You know, probably 1% of people in the world. So that's interesting. No, here's the thing. Now that gives us a natural segue into SMS. Because the great irony... You'll let me talk about this with you now? <laughs> yeah. Because the great irony of me working for an SMS app, it's like my fucking specialty is long, like long form content. And now I work for the shortest form. Because I constantly come back to as well from this like deep like storytelling side of things, heaven and hell, problem solution, identification, real humans are on the other side, to sometimes you just have to show somebody a thing they want, this is the price, and here's where you go and get it. 
I was having a conversation with our CEO, Shoma, the other day, and he was basically like, listen, there's two factors that determine success with SMS marketing. There's what you say and when you say it. The content of the message that you send and when you send it. I almost pushed back on them, I'm like, really, that's it? There are two factors? But the when is so important. So much of everything in marketing is timing. From the biggest, like, multi-thousand dollar agency deals to picking a vendor to am I going to go spend $15 right now by clicking through this SMS message? All of that is contingent on timing. And it's like one of those things of the more present I am, the luckier I get. Like my timing improves the more I show up. But there's just the offer and then there's are you hitting them at the right time because otherwise this is gone in a flash. Okay, there's a few things I want to say about this. First is I'm interested in, to go back a little bit. Do you think SMS has any conversational value, basically, in terms of there's the kind of customer service conversation that could happen via SMS? And I know some people have explored accomplishing this because it seems so simple and so easy. If you could just text somebody back and forth, that seems great. But I've also seen some interesting examples of some folks that have tried it a little bit, and it didn't work. We stopped doing it at some point. Like people trying to do more, like almost longer form SMS. Here's the thing, yes. So like Jones Road. Gosh, I can't remember the name of their retention specialist. We'll have to track her down, their retention lead. She crushes. Joanne, maybe? Joanne, yes. Joanne Coffee, I think, yeah. She crushes conversational flows in SMS. And it's so easy to see what she does with that special skill set she has. Or like, and it's the exact same thing of, okay, Isaac from Mini Katana's, that team and what he's developed crushes short form video. So you need to go forth and crush short form video also. Where it's like you look at the outlier of someone who has an incredibly special skill set and you say that's the norm. And because it's so beautiful and people really are in love with content and commerce, it's just still continues to be such a buzzword that it then becomes, I think the danger is elevating that marketers are gravitate towards it. So it's so easy to hold that up as an example that other marketers will love. And so you get tricked into thinking, well, that's the fundamental value proposition of it then. And that's the outlier, absolutely the outlier case. And it takes so much effort and that special skill set to execute it well. Yeah. So that most people shouldn't be doing that. Most people should be thinking about SMS as drive home the purchase because, you know, and what I've always said about SMS is like, the core value proposition of SMS is deliverability, essentially. Just that like you're going to mostly reach the person with a very clear and direct message on their phone in a way that is just not going to be crowded out the way that an email is or something like that. So the open rate and the deliverability is just a lot higher. And so you can reach people. Now, working against that, and this is what I've said, so correct me where I'm wrong here. I like talking to people who are inside of brands like or inside of service providers like this because you just see way more examples than I do. So what I've always thought was like, that's the core thing that you're able to accomplish is that you're going to get deliverability. Now, the limitation is that it gets expensive when you make it long and that like shorter and less visual tends to work better as well. And so there's some limitations, how many words you can put into it, and how much brand you can drive. Now, that's like a way oversimplified. You can drive brand in a few short words, but you see what I'm saying. The primary purpose, the sin quo non, the thing without which it ceases to be, so I'm philosophical on this. The reason SMS exists is to serve as a purchase mechanism. In e-commerce, anything else that someone else does with it is above and beyond gravy neat. Now, that's a little bit colored because I joined Recart in October, November. 
So I come into this new experience where I'm, I'm immersing myself in text message marketing right on top of the biggest shopping days of the year. And brands are going hard, right, on buy, buy, buy. That's the fundamental. So I think there's some room for lightening up on that and bringing in some of the more content-driven, perhaps some branding. But success in SMS comes down to what is the hardest we can push and still be efficient because this channel costs more than any other form of retention marketing outside of maybe like just pure remarketing on social or something like that. So how do you determine that? How do you determine how much you can push at what point is it no longer worth it to you? Is that just a math problem internally for a brand to solve basically? Like what's the strategic answer to the question that you just asked? Isolating click only attribution on either a one to seven day window coupled with last click in whatever your preferred analytics platform is. That against your spend. And if you're able to maintain above a 5X with those tight considerations in place without seeing other revenue channels, like particularly email, decline in value or compete for the attribution platform against platform, if you're able to push at a four to five, particularly on campaigns, your automations should make up the lion's share of immediate purchase, being particularly your welcome flow and your abandonment flows. Those are gonna disproportionately, they should disproportionately perform better and drive a lot higher returns than one-off campaigns. Then as long as you have positive subscription growth, meaning the entire list over time, that's the sweet spot to try to get to, is when do we push too far so that we can then pull back? If we go below the basic threshold of a four or five X on our campaigns, we've pushed too hard, especially if we have negative growth in the list. You think most brands are pushing too hard or not hard enough on SMS? Oh, most brands are definitely not pushing hard enough. And what's so deceptive about that is it's easy to grab a hold of and call out on social, anywhere, the ones that do push too hard. And for everyone that's pushing too hard, it's wild in the sense of like, even SMS adoption has not reached majority status yet. This is one of the things that really attracted me to Recart was I just assumed, because I'm a marketer living with other marketers in the marketing world, that everyone's doing it and they're not. There is still a one to two year window where SMS will reach majority adoption and people's messages are gonna get just as crammed as their emails and people are gonna get increasingly ruthless about who they let into their text message inboxes. But for now, I mean like, we're looking at probably 13 to 14% among the top 75,000 Shopify stores that have SMS actively enabled in some form on their storefront. 13 to 14%? Yeah, among the top 75,000. Man, that's incredible to me. I can't believe that the number is that small. And that excludes somebody who's just doing click the box to get fulfillment updates. But yeah, we continuously scrape through two large aggregators, installs and active pop-ups 
with either phone entry or two tap enabled, meaning like once you bypass the first email address manual entry on mobile, then you hit the button that takes you to, yeah. Now it skyrockets. Once you're into the, the top 1000, right? It jumps like almost up to 70%. So like the biggest of the big are there, they're doing it. They're the ones that perhaps are pushing too hard. You're saying there's 30 some odd percent of the top 1000 Shopify stores that don't have SMS. I get that's a lot bigger and it, that skyrockets relative to that total batch of 75,000, but that's actually still incredible to me. I would think it would be 90% plus, if not 95% at this point. Like it's just not interesting anymore that you put SMS on your store. <laughs> like it's just not. So that's fascinating. Yeah, here's the thing. It's because we live in this world that the average consumer doesn't. Like, dude, Morning Brew, Retail Brew, just did, I kid you not, two weeks ago, they did this full dedicated email about like SMS. And it was, like and Wall Street Journal did one last year where it's like, what's this newfangled thing? You take one step out of the e-commerce echo chamber and it's not as inundated as anybody thinks. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I like. But still, I just would have thought in the top thousand, you'd mostly be in the echo chamber. You know, again, the number's a lot bigger there, 70%, but it just tells you something about what's going on in that world. That's really fascinating to hear, I think. So I assume that means that like all of the SMS providers are just like up into the right growth still, right? Because there's just so much space. Yes and no. And mostly in the interim, like the most recent, so that's one of the other things we do is through this scraping that we use these two aggregators to do is we actually measure adoption among our major competitors. And for the first time ever, we just got the report earlier today among our three SMS only and one email plus SMS, like our major competitors, the three SMS only have actually declined in active store usage. And the email plus SMS competitor is all but flat since late 2021. That is crazy. Why do you think that is? Because if there's that many people who are still not using SMS, why are those numbers not still up and to the right the whole time? Brands are still incredibly suspicious of it. And on the one hand, they're they're suspicious of it to adopt it because they know it's associated with a specific cost in a way that email just doesn't have. So there's a trepidation to it. And I think an undue negative bias towards SMS, thinking that what you basically get is spammed again and again and it's going to cost you and people are going to churn and it's going to result in a negative experience and you're going to lose customers rather than net gain is there's this impression. The other piece too is the floor is really low on how much money you can accidentally lose with SMS because of how much it costs. And so when you look at what are we spending as e-commerce itself contracts, as there's a flight to value, as profitability starts to overtake or has overtaken growth at all costs then you're looking for ways to, where can we cut? And if there's a line item associated with it, yeah, right? It's just so much easier to see. The reason I perked up right there is because I think it was like a predictions for 2023 episode that Taylor and Richard did at e-commerce playbook. And one of the ones that they hammered was that basically every brand is just going to start like combing through its software stack and just being like, wait a minute, are we really using that? And just start cutting stuff ruthlessly because the need to be really maintain profitability and just problems and recession fears and all those kinds of things. Essentially, when things are good, people just are like, ah, whatever, just keep going, keep pushing. And when things are bad, it's, whoa, we've got austerity measures here, you know? And it's one of those really rough double-edged swords as well, especially for like our competitors that really grew up, like they were ready when the boom happened in 2020 and 21 to take advantage of the money that was flowing into e-commerce and the tech infrastructure that supported it to just absorb all of that 
and now to have flat or negative growth doesn't mean their coffers are empty. It's still intimidating as hell, dude. Like sometimes I'll see some of the out of home advertising that our competitors do and it's just disheartening. It's like, I don't even have that. Like, I don't know, <laughs> that, that type of budget, it just intimidates the crap out of me that some of these other organizations have. Like what I really fell in love with was this ruthless commitment to efficiency. That what our CEO Shoma, and as an extension, our head of customer service, and as an extension then both product as well as the customer service department, what they all have in common is this front or this top down ruthless commitment to what works. And so we're gonna build that first. And what we want to do is if all our full service offering does is raise the floor and eliminate unforced errors, then the payoff, it's so disproportionate to what someone's paying in. When all you can do is have somebody behind the scenes who's that's their first and foremost goal is to be accountable to that, to have their compensation tied to the efficiency because of the repeat we need to send again, we need to send again. And if you're getting returns from that, then you're inclined to do it. That sort of piece really, th that coming together of those two is what sold me on a company I'd never heard of. That and then the retention. Yeah, I still associated with Recart when you first told me that you were being there with Facebook Messenger, that strategy that existed for a little while, Recart was a big part of that. And to see the shift back towards like being a really careful SMS provider with serious focus on tactics and serious focus on how do we really make this right for the customer. It's been cool to hear about you liking it there so much and seeing that as a real option for, so people should check it out for sure. It shows up in interesting ways that I'm almost a little bit scared to talk about from time to time because I'm waiting for competitors to start doing this as well. Like one of the first things we do either during a trial or an onboarding, particularly the larger brands that we've brought on board, is either using their first two campaigns or if it's during the trial, just doing a series of handshakes where we send batches of a thousand, a thousand, a thousand, a thousand numbers through to validate, is this still an active phone number? Is it a landline? Is it on the do not call list? And we'll see sometimes 20 to 30% of a person's list is essentially unreachable numbers that their previous platform just, hey, more is more, send it. Right? And we're gonna charge you even if it's undeliverable and because of the way most of the platforms operate that you simply don't have access to your list the way that you can export your email list from any main, you own your email list. You can take it, you can go somewhere else. It doesn't operate the same way. That really surprised me in the SMS world that it's a real pain and a struggle that often involves lawyers to get somebody to release your list for you so you can clean it yourself. And nobody's incentivized to do this because when you've got flat or declining adoption, flat or declining growth, you simply can't afford to say, all right, we're also gonna take a 15 to 20% cut by actually cleaning these lists proactively for the people that we serve. The interests just aren't aligned. I didn't know that that was even a problem in SMS until you just said that, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah, and that's what I mean by unforced or unforced errors raising the floor of even doing something like let's only send to active numbers when you do a full list send. That's like a gigantic money saver for brands. It's like a no brainer to, of course, be doing that, you know? There literally is no tool that does that. It doesn't exist. Like yeah. we do it manually because it's an advantage we can lean into because it's for their good and any positive growth for us is for our good. And so those two goods come together. Yeah, interesting. All right, man. So you talked about some of these things and I know you wrote up some of this stuff recently in a piece for Recart. We will link that in the show notes. Um, do you wanna talk about what's in that piece for people to go check out? 
Yeah, I think the main one we'll drop you to is simply our uh, landing page. It's our Shopify SMS app landing page. We've got a number of reviews up there. We'll walk through this process of the core value proposition is high volume sending and high profit efficiency. That's where SMS growth comes from. And so the, every program exists along two axes and you've got low to high sending on the left-hand side and low to high efficiency on the bottom axis. And basically what we do is to diagnose where do you land? Are you high volume, low profit? low volume, low profit, probably the most painful is low profit, high volume, which is like the recommendation there is pull back, clean your list, start doing engagement-based sends, a lot of click but didn't purchase follow-ups to far smaller segments to start improving the returns that you get, or high volume, high profit, high efficiency is what we wanna to try to get somebody to. And then still looking at things like doing holdout testing, incremental testing, those sort of things to validate the actual overall lift of a channel like SMS. Love it, and you go check that out. There's a link in the show notes for you to go check out Recart and the things that Aaron and his team are doing over there. And of course, you can always follow Aaron on Twitter at Aaron Orendorf. I'm sure many of the people who are listening to this came through links that Aaron and or I put out. I will obviously be just as shameless to you, Aaron, about making sure that you promote this so that I can exploit the audience that you've built over time through your excellence to get more listens to my podcast and uh, all those kinds of things. So man, so good to do this. And this conversation was all I'd hoped it would be. Got tactical at the end there, but also delightfully meandering. I hope delightful to other people. Delightful to me. Who cares if anybody else likes it? I liked it. So that's yeah. where I'm at with this yeah. whole thing. I've been looking forward yeah. to this for a while. Thank you for yeah. having me. It was one of my favorite shows. This is one that I listen to like every week religiously and it's a real big deal to get to be here and talk with you and hopefully do some good for the people that listened. Thanks man. I appreciate that a lot. All right, I think that's my longest episode ever, but I didn't want to cut it off. I thought it was like a really good time and a lot for me, that was really, really helpful. Like I said in the intro, I think there's some elements of thinking about, especially the approach to marketing more broadly and how you think about your customer and your relationship to your customer that's just really, really useful in any kind of marketing that you're doing. Even if it's you know direct response Facebook versus what Aaron's doing, much longer lead cycle B2B type stuff. You can follow up with Aaron at Aaron Orndorff on Twitter. Make sure to go do that. And we'll also give the link in the show notes to, as I said, his SMS starting spot for Recard. If you are interested in that service, you can go check that out. And of course, reach out to Aaron on Twitter directly if you're interested in more of what he had to say about that. I'm sure he can point you to all kinds of resources. You can also reach me on Twitter at Andrew J. Ferris, where you can email me at podcast.ajfgrowth.com with any thoughts that you have. And I would love those thoughts if they are negative, if they are positive, if they are anything in between. I am all ears on it. I always want the feedback. So please and thank you for doing that. And if you like this episode, I'd be so grateful if you would share it with a friend. If you are interested in more content from me next week on the show, I am going to go the extreme opposite direction here. Much shorter episode with a really highly tactical Facebook ad buying episode. Four things that I think most media buyers get wrong in Facebook ads and that can really make a big impact on your business. So if you are doing anything related to Facebook ads in your business, I think that episode will be helpful to you. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and I will see you next time.